What's going on, everybody? This is Sean of Ross Like Music. And this is the Super Sunny Show. I'm La Molly. This is Blue and Green Radio. Party people, this is Mr. V of Confessions of a Curly Mind, broadcasting through Blue and Green Radio. You're listening to Steve Williams at UK5.org. Welcome to the Blue and Green Sessions. Ride the vibe with DJ Ronnie Ron. Cosmic, Cosmic Radio. Twisted Soul. Futuristica Radio. You're listening to the Blue and Green podcast, and I hope you enjoy what we are going to say. Blueandgreenradio.com. Welcome, friends. You're tuned in to another episode of the Blue in Green podcast. My name's Imran. Thank you very much for tuning in today. Uh, we always appreciate your time and your company. Uh, we're very excited about our episode. Uh, before we jump in, however, uh, the quick reminder that the Blue in Green podcast runs in conjunction with Blue in Green Radio, the online internet radio station uh, that broadcasts from London and is very fortunate to host shows from across the whole wide world. And uh, We each love to kind of celebrate our unwavering affections for content and innovative uh, soul, jazz, funk, Latin music um, and um, hip-hop and uh, electronica and everything in between. So it's always an absolute joy. We'd love for you to check us out at blueingreenradio.com. You'll find our 24 hours a day, seven days a week radio stream from the website. And you can also find a whole host of uh, music reviews and uh, the complete backlist catalogue of these very podcasts. Uh, so uh, when discussing these innovative and inspiring, wonderful uh, artists and musicians, uh, it's with great pleasure. What a great segue. It's with great pleasure that we introduce uh, our guest today. It's myself talking to the brilliant Joe Pignato, uh, the founder, drummer and band leader for the incredible Bright Dog Red, regular listeners of this podcast be very familiar uh, hopefully with the name joe has graced our podcast a few times now he's become something of a, a a staple and a veteran of these episodes so it's always a real pleasure to kind of sit down with joe and to talk music and to talk kind of the process for this uh, incredible collective they are celebrating right now their fifth album through Roper Dope Records which is amazing excuse me I should say their fifth album through Roper Dope since 2018 now that is a staggering statistic um in with you know we're now in 2022 and uh, I think that, that is an incredible statistic so as I say it's kind of it's great to kind of listen back to past episodes with Joe and kind of like uncover the plan for the uh, for their band and see how everything kind of comes to fruition they're an improvising uh, based uh, jazz collective from New York and um, you know their music is as I said inspiring and eclectic and they love to fuse so many different elements uh, into their, their their music and their releases so we're uh, going to be discussing with Joe uh, the brand new album and um it's, quite, it's another opportunity to kind of look back at how uh, the band kind of envisaged their releases to date and uh, obviously the wonderful releases through, uh, again, the wonderful Rope Dope Records. So um, regular listeners of the podcast will know we feature two songs per episode. Our guest uh, will be picking the closing number, but I have the luxury of picking the opening one. And um, in, this, in consideration of uh, the new album, Under the Porch, I'm going to go with the brilliant track, Pardon me uh, there's a lot to pick from from the whole album it's a really really great project and um 
hearing how everything kind of came together uh, is is going to make for a great listen. So I'm going to introduce you to said album with Pardon Me, and then we're going to go from there straight to our conversation with Joe uh, in New York. Um, thank you very much for tuning in, friends. Once again, blueandgreenradio.com, uh, and I very much hope you enjoy the episode. Give me the microphone to heighten your zone Man, I'm a titan, I'm a demon, I'm a dirty gavone I hate to burden you, but pardon me I'm trying to part the sea To tell the DJ, cut the beat and play some Cardi B They hardly trying to hear that conscious Yada yada, got a lot of problems and rock bottoms They'd rather just pop bottles Really, I can't blame them We all tried to jump to 21 like Chan Tatum So I'm chilling in my arboretum Sipping on this carbureted bath And I keep it flowing like the carburetor in a chef While I rev it like a peasant on a L.I.E. And I'm putting poetry in motion on these melodies The hell I be committing lyrical felonies You pedal on your peloton, I'll pedal rhymes at ease You dig it? Yeah, they say that every bright dog has his day And we turn the night sky red every time we play
how have you been i've been well how about yourself yeah yeah it's uh, not bad at all i guess it's been like a year since we <laughs> since we <laughs> last spoke which is it's becoming a, lo- a lovely annual tradition uh, because <laughs> it, it means you have wonderful news really which is always um, lovely to to kind of to see it uh, sort of unfold as 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 and when each project kind of gets unveiled so it's always yeah really exciting when it's sort of uh, musicians that I'm kind of really enthused about and you know them sort of striving for you know continual kind of uh, success and uh, artistic success with just a project after project which is a rambling way of me saying congratulations <laughs> well thank you and it's it's really our pleasure because it uh, means once a year we get uh, the the great positive affirmations that we get from folks like you who've followed what we've been doing uh, from the onset mm. Well, that's very kind. And we're obviously, it's, it's album release day, but, but I, I, before we, we jump uh, straight in, uh, I was, I was thinking back to our like past conversations that we had had. And I, I think, you know, I, again, as you said, it's something of an annual tradition, which has been, which is always a real pleasure to speak to you. Uh, but I remember we spoke last year and we spoke the year before, and I know both of those years, I know we opened our conversations with basically with COVID. And I think it's probably not as, as topical a thing to discuss anymore, but I, I just thought it'd be interesting to kind of see where you're at now because i think what the first time we spoke was it in 2020 uh i think with you being in new york and me being in london in the uk we were two cities sort of struggling to get to grips with it and um thinking oh it won't last that long (laughs) and then the year after we're firmly embedded into this very bizarre kind of quarantine based face mask lifestyle and i was very curious with it being a, another year on how things were for you guys how things were from a, a, a touring or performing um uh, aesthetic as well yeah well it's been a really you know strange and and uh difficult for some certainly uh more than others right a uh, couple of years um and you're right it, it is a different situation now but the effects of of the past couple of years and actually the ongoing threat of covid still are very much with us so you know in new york where i'm at uh, i'm in uh what we call upstate new york which is the you know further north of new york city Mm. basically uh Mm. and i'm in the capital region which is where the capital city of albany is located um, and cases have been rising in upstate New York and in New York City, oh, right. and so it's it's definitely affecting things. Um, fortunately, you know it's it's not quite the same impact as when it first came because mm-hmm. of uh, high vaccination rates in the state uh, and you know precautionary measures, masking that sort of stuff. Um, but mm-hmm. it's definitely still affecting things. I think for us as a band, um, for a couple of the members, it was really difficult because everything they did was just shut down. Um, for some others, uh, you know, a couple of us are in education. We had teaching jobs that helped us through that difficult time. Of course, there were the stresses associated with teaching in the pandemic. That's a whole Mm -hmm. nother (laughs) discussion. Um, but I think, I think where it's impacting us now is, um, we've maintained momentum on the creative front, uh, but some of the momentum on the touring and bookings front you know, obviously that all got shut down in 2020. In 2021, we started to see some hope that things would come back. We even played a couple of gigs. But then with Omicron, a lot of the rebookings from 2020 got canceled in 2021. So we're now looking at in 2022, 
we're seeing folks are, are doing gigs that are rebookings of rebookings that originated in 2020. And that's yeah. impacted us. It means there's a little bit less opportunity for us to play live than we've had in the past. Yeah. Um, but that'll sort itself out. There's some things on the horizon for the group uh, this fall and into 2023 that are pretty exciting. And But as a sort of... Uh, a response to that i remember around this time last year with the the release of uh in vivo you you took on the um the the task of uh say live streaming uh performances as well which i caught too and uh they were such a joy it was so great to kind of obviously I've, it was the first time i've ever live streamed uh a performance like to sit there and watch something live and it's amazing to kind of see it you're in as we said in in new york and i'm in london it's i'm watching it at about 12 or midnight or one in the morning <laughs> and it's really exciting to kind of see this kind of unfold kind of um live and i, I guess as a performer that must be a wholly <laughs> surreal aspect where you're used to an audience and instant feedback and you respond to that accordingly uh but obviously knowing that there are I don't know, you know, how many people are watching via a screen, but you don't have any direct response to that. I mean, that, that was that something you enjoyed? Is that something you're going to hopefully do more of uh, maybe this year? Or So I, I think the best scenario is when you're playing live in front of an audience and right. the live stream option is available for folks that are you right. know, flung far and wide. So folks that are, you know, overseas, uh, if we're playing in the U.S., can can tune in. That would be ideal. And, mm. and uh, when we did In Vivo, there was nobody in the house, and that was a, a, a strange way to play. Um, but because uh, as we were setting up, the shapeshifter folks uh, were able to tell us, you know, hey, we've got folks coming in from, and they're reading out all these different locations mm. and uh, occasionally reading out some of the names of people logging on. So so we felt like we had an audience. It was pretty exciting. Yeah. Uh, in, in the other live streams we've done, we didn't have that information. And, and that then is almost like you're playing uh, in a studio. Um, well, literally you are playing a studio, but I mean like playing on a, a TV soundstage or something like that. It's got that feel like a media production feel to it more than it does a live performance. Mm -hmm. So it's it's different. Those were great bridges to get us back to live playing. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully we'll be able to offer live streams on live performances where there's an audience, because I mm. think even for you folks that are tuning in to the live stream, to hear that there's a live audience, to see the audience, if there's enough cameras, it, it gives you, uh, yet another sort of, um, layer to appreciate, right. As mm. you're watching the performance, because for us, the audience is really a big, big part of what we do. Yeah. However, I don't know if anyone ever relayed this to you, but I always considered, like like my question kind of implied, it asked about your perspective of, you know, you looking out to, you know, faces or not faces in this case. And I always considered the, the live stream from, say, an artist's perspective. I'd never considered it from me as a viewer slash listener. And it's very bizarre when you're watching a live performance and there is, as you say, there is no dimension of audience feedback. There's a very bizarre intimacy from my perspective, and I, I would imagine if people thought about it, you, you know, people that were watching it on their screens, say alone or in groups, it's a, it's kind of like you're playing for me or playing for them as almost individually. Does that make any sense? It, it does actually, and I understand exactly what you mean, and I hadn't thought of that, but um, the reason it sounds familiar and 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 resonates, so to speak, is that um, you know during that period we were all 
we were all at home. Yeah, <laughs> and I watched yeah, yeah. quite a few live stream performances, including the series from the Village Vanguard that I thought were really excellently done, right. as well as a number of ones from Shapeshifter, because uh, mm. you know it was such a great venue and wanted yeah. to support that organization. And and you did feel like you were getting a concert in your living room, which yeah. was <laughs> pretty amazing. And 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 um, I have to say. With the Vanguard and Shapeshifter, given the circumstances, the quality of the audio, the mixing of the live stream, the kind of compression and processing used by the engineers who worked on those productions, I have to say it was really outstanding under mm -hmm. the circumstance. And, um, uh, you know, I, I remember logging in the first time I watched one of the Vanguard performances. Um, I don't remember which one it was that was the first one I watched, but I really had doubts about the sound quality and the image quality. And, you know, it was pretty good, not just for what it was. In general, it was pretty good. It was a pretty enjoyable experience. Mm -hmm. And that's why I do hope I do hope venues can, if it's cost effective, continue to make that available to folks. It won't it won't have that one to one intimate kind of, yeah, of exchange that you're talking about, but it's still pretty amazing to be able to see you know, to see these things in your home that maybe you can't get to because you live far away or something yeah. like that. And I think probably a buzz for in the same way, there's a buzz for the audience in attendance, you know, for it to be, to know that it's, you're there at a, a performance that is being live streamed across the world. And I think those, like you can imagine these kind of middle, these intermissions where you would say, you know, thanks to everyone here, of course, but, you know, and then you read out people from London and Paris or Germany or, you know, various parts of the States. And uh, for the audience, that must be like, well, this, that's amazing. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's pretty incredible in, in of itself. So I do hope it's something that you're able to kind of uh, pursue for future performances. That would be, yeah, I'd certainly, um, yeah, I'd certainly uh, be signed up. So I, I really do uh, enjoyed. I really enjoyed uh, kind of just sitting back and just sort of watching this un unfold because as you open every performance, and I think I said this, I think I'm pretty sure I said this to you last time, it was awesome to finally uh, be present for your your infamous introductory line of, uh, <laughs> of if you're curious to know what we're going to sound like, uh, then so are we. And I, I got a real buzz the first time <laughs> you said that. I was oh, that's amazing because I had known of that line for some years. And yeah, to actually kind of hear that line and then to know that you're not playing so set songs, it's going to just take its own course because of the improvised nature of Bright Dog Red. It's, it's a, yeah, it was a new layer of, of sort of just excitement for the, for the gigs. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Well, then you'll appreciate that the new album is called Under the Porch. There is a uh, track of the same name that bears no yeah. other resemblance to Under the Porch on our previous album, In Vivo. And um, we, we kind of, uh, you know, debated whether we should change the name of this album, which was already sort of in the works and, and, and we had the working title. Uh, but the reason we named the track on um, In Vivo Under the Porch is because Matt was sort of riffing with ideas for this album. And in, in the live context, he used that phrase. And I'm like, no, I think it actually would be perfectly mm. appropriate for this band to have a song that sounds entirely different than, than a song with the same title on an album titled right. Under the Porch. Right. So there are two two songs titled Under the Porch that sound nothing like each other. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's well, the, the, I suppose the approach as well. I mean, they they are they sound nothing like each other, but they were 
put together in completely different ways, uh, as is my understanding of of how this album was was put together. So we're talking on uh, release day. This is your fifth album, which I mean, let's 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 linger on that for a moment. I'm five Bright Dog Red album since 2018 that's just, all through Robodope records i mean what a staggering statistic right it's it's uh, unreal for us and um you know when we were first approaching Robodope, which was uh, 2017 it it just felt like that was the place that our album should should live and um we didn't know if they would feel the same way uh, so when when I finally connected with Lewis Marks, the CEO of Ropadope, and 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 we felt immediately that there was there was this intersection of what the label does, what we do, and then of what we, meaning Lewis and I, reasonably could expect from Bright Dog Red. In other words, we had expectations about w- what would releasing a Bright Dog Red album look like, and there was a lot of overlap. Uh, that was one of the things that in our first discussion, you know, he wanted to know, like what. What do you think about when you when you think about releasing this album? What are what are your goals? What what do you envision? Where do you see the band fitting in, in the general landscape of improvised music, creative music, um, and also in, in in terms of the the industry landscape? It's a changing industry. Like wh- where does and kind of avant garde jazz fusion act fit in? Mm-hmm. So fortunately, uh, you know, we we had very similar understandings of, of, of the answers to those questions and, and, and we felt an immediate synergy and, and you know five albums later it's it's I think now clear that that synergy is there and we're delighted to have a, a label that supports what we do mm-hmm. um, and we never imagined five albums in four and a half years yeah. uh, it's just that the band came together at a point where we signed with Ropadope uh, that has has allowed us to be uh, prolific in a certain way, um, and not for the purpose of being prolific. So we're, we've never set out saying we must do an album a year or more. Um, it's just worked out that way. And I think a good example would be our third album, Something Comes Along, which was a double album. Mm. Um, we did, you know, we did the sessions for that, thinking it would be a, an album, you know, ten to twelve tracks, something like that. But there was there was enough material, and and I felt like, well, you know, if we have this material, a double album might be an interesting thing to add to the catalog, and you know, three albums. If you get three albums to come out and one's a double album, we would have been satisfied there. But you know, then we had the opportunity to do a live album, and that was something we envisioned. We had talked about yeah. that. Uh, I think you and I even talked about we at, did at, from after the, the first third conversation. Yeah, yeah. yeah I yeah. mentioned that a, a live album was something we might want to do. So. So each of the albums has sort of organically grown out of the process of understanding whatever the present album is that we're working on. Yeah. So uh, there is an album six in the works, and it, it definitely comes out of the work we did on Under the Porch and thinking about what it, what is it, how is it similar or different from our previous albums. Amazing. You mentioned uh, Lewis Marks asking you, uh, you know, what do you, what are your intentions? What are your goals? Do you remember what you said as a response to that? And do you think since 2018 that that's changed for you at all? Yeah, I do. I won't get into the specific details except Mm -hmm. to say that we, we talked a lot about what the next level would look like for an unsigned band of ours, uh, or of, I should say, uh, like ours, um, you know, what, what, what would the next level be? So, you know, we had two EPs out, we were getting some good blog coverage. We were playing a lot. 
Um, and it's like, well, where, where are the places should this band go next? And, and we identified places, you know, different types of uh, playing opportunities, different types of media coverage beyond the sort of small blogs that we're getting at the time. Um, and it wasn't because the small blogs weren't great. They were really important to us. And we continue to get great support from a lot of different types of blogs, which is fantastic. Uh, but we also felt like there were other types of media outlets. So, for example, maybe the traditional jazz press, um, uh, some of the musician-oriented press, but maybe even some general interest press. So we started identifying like targets in that area, and when um, we came up like with a, you know a list of things we thought were were sort of reasonable um, for for us, a big piece of that that next step for an unsigned band is just to have comprehensive distribution. And uh, Ropadope certainly, you know, to the second half of your question, did. Uh, did we get to those places? Uh, Ropa Dope delivered that for us immediately, and that Amazing. was uh, that was a difference maker for us. I mean, it really makes a big difference for an unknown band to suddenly have comprehensive global distribution, mm -hmm. um, and we're you know very appreciative of that because that's then allowed us to make our music available to uh, fans, of course, the blogs, the larger blogs, the, the general media interest, the jazz music interest media or uh, media interests uh the 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 sort of rock and psychedelic alternative hip-hop we, we were able to reach out to a lot of people mm. and they they could access our music easily because it was available not only on all the streaming platforms but in their territory right so um you know i've seen that with unsigned bands struggle with that sometimes where they're, they're trying to break into a market but their music's not available in that market because their distribution doesn't cover certain territories so mm. i you know, Ropadope delivered that for us. I think they also gave us, um, you know, there's there there's something to be able to say that I, I think for for a group to say they're on a label doesn't mean as much as it once did, right? That's not what I'm getting at. But for a group to be able to say they're on a label that so so makes sense given the niche music they make and what the label's known for, that's still really valuable. Um, and so the fact that it's Ropadope in particular has meant a lot to us. And I think it's also made it so those other interests that I talked about in the media, in radio, they don't know what we sound like because they see Ropadope, but they have an idea of where in the world we're going to be. You know, like the, the part of the, the music universe that we reside in, they get... they. It's like a it's like a GPS locator. Oh well, it's on Ropadope, so it's going to be in this general region. And I think right. that that's been really helpful. Mm. So yeah, Ropadope has has been great for us, and and I do think we achieved those goals, and I think we've exceeded them in some areas as well. Um, I don't think we ever imagined there being five albums. Mm. It is incredible. I mean, you you mentioned that we had discussed the, uh, the sort of the live album way before it had come to fruition. I mean, there are it, this this album seems really special because it's um, it's like the end of the five year plan. Because, and I say that because I remember the first time we spoke, you mentioned you wanted to do a live album, and then after the live album, you mentioned wanting to do an album that veered away from the notion of like full improvisation and something that i think the initial plan was you wanted to record um uh sort of performances and basically send the uh stems to an outside kind of source to kind of to compile it in their own way um, and that for the for under the porch that's evolved a little bit into what it's been you know you handling the sort of the, the production but it has been done in a a post-production kind of context hasn't it where it's not been 
in sort of recorded in the same way uh excuse me will finalized in the same way that the previous projects have been is that right yeah that's that's right on and your recollection is amazing uh so <laughs> so the idea of having an outside person like a producer or a remix artist uh create something from our tracks is an idea we're still very much uh thinking about and so that might actually be in the future um uh, but you never know because whereas that was the plan covid sort of subverted that it made it mm. made it more difficult for that to happen sure. um just just like when we did something comes along my plan was to have the album be mixed by paul geluzzo who mixed our first two albums and is a brilliant mastering mixing and mastering engineer recording engineer in new york city uh and so but paul was unavailable for the third album so in order to make sure we made our deadline, uh, I had to brush off my mixing skills and mix that album. And it, it, being that it was a double album, nice. um, being that it used more studio technique than our previous two albums, I, the mixing and editing learning curve for me was was sharp. And um, uh, and and so then I had in the back of my brain, well, okay, I can I can do do this well enough, and maybe. I'll do it on future albums. And so the live album then has its own, there, there, there are particular challenges with a live album, you know, and, and a lot of that's dependent on the space you recorded in. So specifically recording in Shapeshifter and doing live music with things like mixing acoustic bass with electronic sounds and electric guitar. There are a lot of really interesting mixing challenges with the live album. So between album three and album four, my mixing and editing and post-production skills took a huge leap. So while we were doing this pass around idea during COVID, nobody could get together. We're, you know, we decided we're going to pass files around and see how things develop. The vision of having somebody create an album out of our live improvised tracks became, all right, I'm going to create an album out of individually improvised tracks. And um, and, and accept that this album will be different from what we do. And maybe even we could think of this album as a foil to the previous album. So the live album is here's what we do, minimal editing from the downbeat to the end of the performance, right. hit play. You hear the whole thing straight through. Um, this album is very different. Uh, this album is 12 tracks that were created, you know, basically edit by edit, layer by layer, with each musician adding their piece after hearing what came to them. But what came to them was never the complete piece. And um, during the process, some of the, some of the members of the band were like, wow, you know, you have such a clear vision for this. I'm like, yeah, actually, I really don't. I'm, 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 letting, <laughs> I'm letting it evolve. And, and, you know, my only vision is we'll know when the tracks are right. And that's kind of mm -hmm. how it worked out. So... Uh, I would hear it and say, oh, you know, this this could use something else. Maybe Cody, the electronic musician, for example, would be a good person to send it to. Or, or you know, maybe this could use some additional saxophone. I'm going to send it to Eric Person, who plays soprano and alto and flute on, in our group. Um, and so that that's kind of how things evolved. And at, at a certain point, I was just like, okay, this track's done. Now I just have to think about fine-tuning the mix. Mm. Um, but with each new contribution that would come in, the composition of the track, the actual composition and structure would change. And then the mix had to change. And then I had to rethink everything from the ground up. And so the process generally was I created 
improvised drum tracks. Uh, there were 12 of them. I then did some work editing those drum tracks. So some, some of what you hear in the drumming on the album is actually mostly me playing straight through. Some of it's um, just loops that I've taken and I've sort of chopped up loops and created the drum part that way. Some of it's a combination of those two approaches. Uh, some of it's kind of free drumming without much editing. Um, and then I, I would send those drum tracks, which we were, call we were calling them foundations. That's kind of the language we used during the production mm -hmm. process. So I'd say, okay, I got a drum foundation. I'm going to send it to this bass player or that bass player. And this album's unusual because there are three bass players. Um, and the reason for that is we have a phenomenal, uh, you know, founding member of the group, uh, Anthony Berman, who plays acoustic bass. Mm -hmm. We have a wonderful guitarist named Tyreek Jackson, who also is an excellent electronic, uh, electric bass player. Um, and so he's taken on bass duties on certain tracks where, we, where maybe we want electric sound. Uh, Tony Berman, by the way, plays excellent electric bass as well. He plays electric bass on the first album. Yeah. Uh, but his main main instrument with us has been acoustic bass. Um, but then we had an opportunity to have Tim Lefebvre, the, the wonderful uh, you know, um, bass player and producer, Tim Lefebvre, to contribute to the album. Um, and so, so that gave me three different bass players with three different approaches. So I kind of divvied up the drum tracks based on my perception of, of, of their styles and sounds. And that was one aspect of the band. You know, like, you know, when you're making an album, you look back and some things you feel like, okay, we got this right. Other things, well, maybe I would do it differently next time I make an album. But that was, that, that worked out well. <laughs> the, the, the sort of divvying up of the drum foundations. Um, I think however I would have done it would have been interesting, but I really feel like each one of them got, the right drum tracks for what they do as a bass player. And, and so we had strong, a strong, you know, basis for each track. Once I got the bass parts back and then I had to do more editing in some cases like Tony, you know, Tony played straight through like what I sent him as a drum track and his bass playing are pretty much what you hear on the tracks that he's on. Um, and that was his approach. Uh, Tyreek took a different approach. Tyreek sent me like, um, I started referring to them as modules of sound. So like riffs on guitar, riffs on the bass, but not necessarily throughout the whole track, right? So a lot of what you hear on his tunes, compositionally, he, he was a huge contributor to, but then I would move things around and sometimes he wouldn't send me, like he would send me just enough for like half and then say, hey, you can edit it up. And, and so it was a really interesting way to work and, and sort of create like a third track. So the track started with the drums, then there were his ideas. And then the third track would be how I put those two things sort of reintegrated them to send to the next musician. And Tim, like Tony played straight through, but with Tim, it was like a combination of thinking compositionally and improvising. And also Tim's, you know, uh, in addition to being a virtuoso bassist, he's got great sense of tone and effect. And so he, he gave me beautiful bass sounds to work with. Um, yeah, so, you know, each bass player really helped set the direction for then who I would go to next, whether it was, oh, you know, this should go to Tyreek for guitar, or this should go to Cody for sounds, or Eric Person, or Mike LeBombard, the great tenor saxophonist who's been with us for uh, four albums, wow. um, you know, just work through. And then, and then as we we're doing this, always leaving space for Matt, our MC, to make sure that he had a place to, to add his, his magic. It's like you've evolved 
the notion of improvisation in a weird way because obviously you're used to doing all of this together but the fact that everyone still gets to feed off of what someone else has done it's like it's in a weird way you're still you're still it's still a, a big part of the whole process for this album in a way is that right yeah i think um i think you know we're for us we're not really rethinking improvisation like that's always how i've understood improvisation uh you know not just as a improvising musician but as someone who's written about it as a research you know scholar and and, and professor of music it's a it's a topic i think about a lot and improvisation whether it's in music or in everyday life it it's always it's always happening in the context of some formal bounds or parameters right so you know if you take a conversation like the one we're having in a way we're speaking extemporaneously but we're also speaking extemporaneously within parameters right mm, you speak right. And, and maybe in, in speaking you're making an observation and, and asking a question and then of course i'm responding and so there's there's expectations and sort of formalities to any kind of improvisation that's true in music right so mm. um if you're thinking about let's say more uh straight ahead kind of traditional jazz improvisation you're improvising over a form with changes and uh, it's sort of clear sequence of who improvises when, and there's kind of shared knowledge and practice about those things. Um, what we're doing here is uh, we're using the uh, extensions of the studio to allow us to improvise in response to individual iterations. So each musician iterates an idea, then the next musician responds. And my job is the producer was then to, to integrate all those things so there'd be a comprehensive whole that it, that it would sound good as a track and then and then the next level that was to make sure that all the tracks sounded cohesive as an album and and those two things those latter two things were probably the most challenging because everybody was recording with different equipment different microphones in different spaces um and so getting that kind of continuity of sound across the album was uh, um you know um it was a welcome challenge. It was a challenge, but one that was really creative and fun to try to uh, address. Do you, was there any, when you kind of uh, proposed this as uh, the process for, for Under the Porch, were there any uh, members who kind of thought, oh, this isn't what we normally do. Like, can't we stick to the, <laughs> you know, the idea of doing this sort of in more, in, in more traditional sort of BDR kind of context or were people kind of embracing of this new, kind of a perspective on putting the album together uh nobody objected at all and i think that was uh partly because it was we started the project even before the live album was done i mean um the live album was recorded we we started the project pretty much once we realized we couldn't gig the third album the double album came out we we, we really had a lot of momentum you know we played winter jazz fest in new york we were so excited to do that there were things brewing potential appearances in the UK, for example, um, possible West Coast dates in the US, and uh, COVID shut all that down. So I think everybody was just eager to find a way to keep things going, not so much for the band. You know, I, we, I, think, I think our thinking moved away from, oh, let's do this for the purposes of Bright Dog Red or maintaining momentum for Bright Dog Red. It was just more like people really wanted to connect. You know, yeah. everybody is in different places. And uh, one great thing about this band is there's a real camaraderie in the group and um i think that was really what drove 
us going in this direction, uh, and it it aligned well with the vision that you and I talked about. So so everybody was aware that this was a kind of record that we we were going to make at some point, um, and we're just like, well, let's the, the, let's do it now. And and you know, for a long time before we had a title or any of the songs had titles, this we were calling this the Beats album because it starts with beats, and I was using beat production techniques. And so, you know, it's like, oh, let's work on the Beats album, you know, it's and it's not a Beats album per se now, right, when it's done, although there's a lot of beat elements to it. Um, But that's how we're thinking about it. So everybody was actually on board. And I think for us, you know, the get in the studio live improvise and track model is not it's nothing we're going to ever abandon, but we never we never committed to it as the only way we would we would make albums so there are times and you've never asked this but other interviewers have asked us you know are you ever going to write songs you know maybe (laughs) you know really we're musicians and um what we'll do is whatever we think at the moment is right and it and serves well what bright dog red is sort of documenting in in its process and um so right now this improvised improvised approach is one that we're going to keep exploring but we th- we do think there are of course many ways to do that uh, as as so many great you know there's so many great musicians out in well in general and in history of course but but right now in this moment just so many great musicians doing improvised music and they all have different approaches like it's not mm-hmm. it's not you know I can listen to so many different albums and say oh wow this is amazing and really be moved by it and then read about their approach and it'll be different from certainly our approach, but different from other musicians and the way they talk about their improvisation. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so there, there was no hesitation from the members. Cool. You, you kind of said about how, um, sort of thinking back to the process of, of the life of a song and how you, you hear something, it goes to someone else, it comes back, then it goes to someone else, then you do your bit, etc. Is it does it require a lot of discipline in terms of knowing when to stop on a song? Because it feels like it's sort of that's a process that could just sort of go on forever. Do you know what I mean? Do you have are you quite disciplined in saying that's that's it? Like that's perfect as it is and I'm gonna resist the urge to send this to another person or anything like that. Yeah, so I I think that for me I I'm um I I'm a a repeat listener. <laughs> so when I'm working on the tracks, I'm I'm listening to them a lot. Um, you know, uh th- this album has been playing in some form in my house and in my ear, you know, headphones and earbuds for uh, right. since 2020 or 2021 whenever. I think 2020 we started the first tracks actually. Right. So I felt like I I arrived at at a point that hey these tracks are done with without thinking about it. it it was more like the track told me okay it's done and um this has a kind of there there's an illustrious sound to some of the tracks um and and then other tracks are more bare bones it just, it just depends on what 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 was evolving after the bass and drums were set, you know, like what, what was coming along and and that kind of, you know, it dictated what should be next. And it also dictated whether anything should be next. Maybe it was done. Mm. Um, And there were, there were times where I tried a couple of things and decided not to use them. Uh, Usually it was never where I, I, I asked somebody to add a track and then the whole, their whole contribution to a song was, was, you know, 
cut. That that did not happen. But maybe I, I would cut part of what they sent and say, oh, well, this is all really good. It's all really good. But we don't need the first half because actually there's more going on with the guitar there than I really thought about. Or, you know, so the, you do make those kinds of valuations as you go. But you, you reach a point where you say, okay, that's that's what that should sound like. Mm, right. How does, um, say, Matt, Matt Coonan as the MC to the group? I mean, normally, again, he's in this environment of creating uh, his part as well. His words come as 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 your your kind of music is unfolding in of itself. How does his contribution come at, right at the end? Uh, or, you know, does he has was he in a position where he could kickstart a song and then have everything built around him? So there's a couple of instances where he is the first thing. Uh, after the drums and bass and that definitely shaped um how other people then played right so so the break where he should be for the most part i kind of identified and said hey you know here's some drum tracks with the bass part from you know whichever bass player contributed uh, i'm hearing you at and i would give him you know the time yeah. marker but i would always say it's early in the process, so maybe you hear some other stuff. So most of what he did on the album is is following my notes, but not all of it. He, right. You know, there were several instances where he's like, "Oh, what, what about here?" And I think I could add something here. Oh yeah, great, go for it. Um, there was another track. I think the last track that he added to "Away for Breaks." Um, right. that that's uh, man, I really love that track, and that, mm. that track was a labor of love because. It, as it was developing, that one was the least clear as to where it should go, and then, and then it got to a point where, like, you know, pretty much, pretty much what you hear on the album just before Matt contributed, I'm like, okay, that's that's almost there. But I, I wasn't thinking of Matt on the track because it's kind of a busy track. There's a lot going on. Mm. But then I thought, you know, it's kind of about like an exasperated feeling and and needing to get away, and you know. Um, let me just throw that idea out at Matt. And, and so I, you know, I, I send him a text. I say, I want to email you something. I want you to listen to it and just send me some raw vocals. Don't worry about so much where they are going to fall. Uh, say, I'm kind of hearing maybe these, I did give him some time markers, but I said, don't worry about like, don't, this doesn't need to be precise. And you can record this on your phone. Like it doesn't need to, you don't need to go into the studio, which is what he did for most of the album, go into a studio near his right. home. So, and he just sent me pretty much what you hear on the album. He sent it to me, and then I did some processing to 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 give it space within the mix so that it would sound like it was where it belonged, and also to accentuate the exasperation of of what he's doing there. And once I heard that, I'm like, oh, this is done. <laughs> that was the missing piece. So Matt really played a role coming in, not at the very, very beginning. It was always drums first, then bass. But coming in sometimes right after that, and then mm. in the case of a way for breaks, coming in at the very end and actually being the the fine tuning that made me say, "Oh, that track is done." And actually, right. that track it sounds it sounds complete because of his contributions. Right. Was he um, sort of trying to maintain an element of freestyling still, or was he sort of enjoying the luxury of? time and being able to sit down and and you know pen things that you know that he could make more you know uh, uh cohesive or logical or anything like that was he kind of enjoying the, that chance of i can get sit down and write something 
uh, as opposed to trying to freestyle in those moments? It's a good question. I, I, I'd have to ask him that, but, but my, my um, impression is this. So when we play live, Matt's poetry is a mix of poems that he's written hmm. that he finds a way to fit into what we're doing. In other right. words, he'll hear in a groove or beat and he'll, you know, he'll hear what, what the BPMs are, what the, the feeling is, the time feel. And he'll say, in his brain, he's very good. He'll just say, oh, this poem that I wrote you know, three years ago is going to work there. And he'll just right. go into the poem. And it'll work and it'll sound like, like it was prepared for that moment in the music. So that's one way he works. Another way he works is he will freestyle in that moment. Um, and then a third way he works is a combination of those two things. And I think this album is a combination of those two things. Um, but some things, you know, he really thought through and other things I think he was uh, kind of in the moment and just responding. Amazing. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Yeah, it was, um, uh, yeah, his part, I think for Pardon Me as well, was, uh, was, I think, was that, the, that was the first single, wasn't it? That was sort of uh, released. I remember, yeah. Just yeah, that's track him, five wait, on the yeah. album. Yeah, the way he kind of delivered it, it, it felt completely sort of different. I, I enjoyed that approach for the, uh, uh, the kind of the album. So I, I was intrigued to know if he kind of felt like he had to sort of maintain that kind of uh, moment of sp- that element of spontaneity or whether he kind of relished the idea of, yeah, I'm going to take some time, which will be nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think everybody had time on this album because hmm. the, the the way we did it. But um, and, and, you know, like Tyreek's tracks, in some ways, the guitar tracks are pretty composed the solos are, are obviously solos and improvised but um a lot of the rhythm guitar tracks he, he took time to compose because he, he you know he heard riffs and ideas and so i think it's um it, it the album is a pastiche and i think the 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 each member individual member used a pastiche of methods in creating their contributions uh awesome yeah and you mentioned obviously tim uh bassist tim lefebvre i mean being part of uh the the, the ensemble this go around how, how did that one come about because that's as you said it's an amazing uh kind of it's an amazing coup to uh, to kind of have him as part of it and you know revered bassist uh in his own right how did how did you guys make that connection um well so it started with you know tim uh has uh among many wonderful projects. He has a project called Ego Mundo and uh, also a project called Whose Hat Is This? And they both have released on uh, Robodope. And around the time that the first Whose Hat Is This came out on Robodope, uh, Bright Dog Red's debut came out. And um, I noticed Tim was uh, kind of shouting us out on social media quite a bit. And he has a great following and you know we were new to the scene so uh i thought well that's that's really cool and i was really appreciative so you know of course i tweeted a shout out to him thanking him and i don't remember exactly how he responded it's on twitter so i could go back and look but his response was something to the effect of uh yeah of course uh you know we're on the same label and it's a really interesting project and and this is this is a funny and you have the same exact name as my buddy from high school. So he took notice because, you know, I have a first name that's very common, Joe, but my surname, Pinato, is in the U.S. especially not very common at all. And right. so uh, he went to high school and was good friends with somebody with that same name. So, of course, when I heard this, I was surprised. Uh, but it turns out I grew up around a 
uh, around the corner, living, you know, around the corner from a family with the name Lefebvre. And there was a Tim Lefebvre in the family. So, wow. um, you know, we, th- that was just kind of funny. And, and, and then that led to us kind of like, oh, well, where did you grow up? And well, you know, grew up in New York City area. Oh, well, I'm from the Boston area. Oh, well, you actually, you know, your friend with my name might actually be a distant cousin. Like we're trying to figure out those connections. Right. But um, then we kind of discovered we both have, a, a, you know, a, big sports fans and we're comparing notes on baseball teams and how is it if I'm from New York, I like the Boston Red Sox. And I explained, you know, my connections to Boston. And so we just started this fun kind of back and forth, you know, mm. social media can be such a drag and every now and then you connect with somebody and you actually, you know, it's a nice connection and it's fun. Yeah. Um, but uh, it led to Tim, you know, being really sort of encouraging of the idea of trying to do something together. And and one of the things was, you know, maybe, maybe we could do a gig in New York with one of his groups in Bright Dog Red. And so uh, that happened. Uh, we did a gig with um, a trio with Jason Lindner, uh, who's, uh, you know, very much associated with Tim. And of course they were both on David Bowie's Black Star, um, wow. uh, but they've worked together many other Context, uh, Sedato, that project that came out recently uh, is one that comes to mind. Um, but uh, both two incredibly creative musicians and, and, and then the great drummer, Zach Danziger. So we did a double bill with that trio. And um, I was explaining this to Lewis Marx recently of Bropadope. And, you know, we had no business being on a double bill with that trio. <laughs> um, the, the way that happened was originally we were going to open, Bright Dog Red would open for that trio at Shapeshifter Lab. And we were, of course, very excited. And it was amazing that Tim had helped put the whole thing together. And his enthusiasm for it was just, um, I think the word I used in my discussion with Lewis is just, there's a generosity to him. Like he's, he's a world-class musician, but super generous. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so uh, being that he is a world class musician and highly sought after, he was doing, uh, he was playing with Stay Human, uh, Jean Baptiste's band. Oh, wow, and, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, on the Stephen Colbert's uh, show. Sure. So uh, because of the rehearsal schedule for that show, he actually he asked if they, if the trio could play first and we play second. So I was like, well, how's that work? We're supposed to be the opening act. He's like, he well, let's, for you. let's just do it as a double bill. And so that, you know, that actually was for us a helpful moment because I think some people in the New York press and some people in the New York City area that didn't know about us sort of paid attention in a different way. Mm-hmm. So that evening uh, went really great. Um it was amazing to hear Tim play. It was great to have him there while we were playing. And, um, and he and I just kept in touch. And when he heard about this project, he's like, uh, Hey, you know, I'd love to contribute. And so that's, that's how it came to be. Amazing. Yeah. That's yeah. That's a super cool story. That's really cool. Um, gosh, wow. Tim, the Feb open feet open for bright dog red. Wonderful. Well, not, not quite. (laughs) It was, it was really, (laughs) you know, it was there, it was a double bill and, and, uh, they, they were clearly the, the, you know, the, the, the primary draw. Um, but it was great, great to share that stage with them. And, And also the vibe just was really cool. And we're, we're the same age, um, a lot of similar interests. And so uh, we've kept in touch and, and through Rope-A-Dope, uh, you know, we met, we met during Winter Jazz Fest, we met uh, up again at a Rope-A-Dope uh, event in New York City. And um, 
yeah, just a great, great person to to know and to have him contributing to the band like that is fantastic. Yeah, that's wonderful news. Great story. Um, there's uh, there was something about I think when you initially uh, announced um, uh, under the porch. There was a there was a line you put I think in sort of that's that's been included in promo and I believe it's currently on Bandcamp as well which I I found really fascinating and I've I've <laughs> I've wanted to discuss this with you I guess for a couple months now it's been that long since um uh, sort of uh, yeah we they contact about sort of doing this there's a, a line in the in the promo that basically cites under the porch but I think primarily because of the way it's been put together you refer to this as the most accessible uh, bright dog red album and i i find that a really fascinating uh kind of perspective um i suppose like it kind of it's it's interesting because you also mentioned when you sort of made contact with uh mr marks you you talked about you know an avant-garde kind of um jazz project and how that fits into like a contemporary scene so i mean does being accessible in any context ever weigh on you as a as a as an artist who has a vision of their music do you do you have to have you previously considered what it means to be accessible and how you know whether bright dog red music is accessible do you know does that make as a, i think i've got five different questions and i've merged three of them uh into that but yeah do you consider sort of your band as um it, it's very nature of being accessible is that something you consider uh you know in terms of reaching people and how people respond to the notion of say improvised uh jazz yeah so I definitely get your questions you're right there are multiple questions in there uh <laughs> so i'm going to give you kind of uh, one answer but with multiple aspects so the, the first thing is i have you know long felt as an improvising musician that there's there's two things you shouldn't do with audiences one is you shouldn't fool them so like for example you know, this is sort of comical. It's not likely to happen. But like, if you're if you're an avant garde jazz group and you and, and you get booked at a you know like a, a dinner club, <laughs> and you go in and you're playing really dissonant, aggressive music to folks who are there to basically dine and looking for background music, sure. you they're not going to like you, of course. Right. But in a way, it's your fault because you 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 fooled them by not playing kind of the right setting. You know right. what I mean? So you always need to be cognizant of setting, and that's important. Uh, the t if you take that too far, though, you might do something that's the second thing I think you should never do with an audience, which is pander to your audience, right. um, because that'll always come across as inauthentic. So I think what you have to do is you have to read your audience, know your audience, and do what you can authentically do as yourself, but do it in a way, or not even in a way, find the aspects of, of yourself that authentically work with that audience, right? Yes. So, so you're, not, you're not changing anything. You're just saying, well, maybe tonight we're not going to do this aspect, or maybe we're going to do more of that aspect. So for us, um, we've had a couple of experiences. One was uh, we were booked after playing a festival and doing really well and being booked in the right venue for avant-garde music. Uh, we were booked to play that festival again the next year. And because our set the previous year had gone so well, they booked us on the main stage, which we were, of course, really excited about. And then we showed up, and uh, unbeknownst to us, we were actually the headliners. Wow, and amazing. that, well, it was amazing, but we, nobody there knew us. We were the headliners <laughs> just because it was an open air festival and they felt like it would be good to have bright dog red but you know when we look in the audience we see like you know parents 
sort of bobbing their babies on their knee, children playing, like it was a family open air summer festival. So we thought, well, you know, what would you do in a situation like that? You don't want to pander to them. You don't want to suddenly, you don't want to suddenly yeah. try to play like accessible music for the purpose of being accessible. Well, what, what is something that we do authentically that might work? Well, we definitely gravitate towards grooves. And so we did a groove oriented set and um, it, it went over really, really well. It was just really terrific. And uh, a similar example would be we were playing, we were playing in not a dinner club, but in a bar with a restaurant. And uh, the bar was known for booking adventurous music. Uh, this was in Philadelphia. Um, but we we're playing at this venue and uh, a group of, I'd say about maybe, oh, 10 to 12. It was a big group, maybe eight or 10, let's say. Eight or 10 uh, women, maybe in their early 60s comes, <clears throat> comes in. And they sit, up, um, they sit up front right by the bandstand. And um, as I'm playing, I'm kind of wondering, like, gee, I hope we're not going to be too loud. I wonder, if, you know, like, you know, basically I made the mistake of kind of prejudging what their taste right. would be, which was a fault of mine. Like, you can't, you can never prejudge what somebody's going to like or dislike. But as we're playing, I notice they start calling over the wait staff. And the wait staff comes and is like talking to them. So, you know, we're on the bandstand. We see sort of this commotion. And we're thinking, oh, okay, maybe they don't really like what they're hearing. And then they start moving their tables. Their tables are being rearranged. So now we're thinking, okay, they, this is, this is <laughs> awkward, you know. But we're in the middle of like a long improv. And, and the band's kind of, you know, it's, it's, the band was clicking. Things felt good. But mm. I'm reading this all wrong. So I made the mistake of reading these folks who came in you know thinking that this might not be their taste which was wrong to assume and it was wrong to assume that it was a commotion that was a negative commotion what they were doing was they were rearranging the tables because a they wanted to be able to see the band b they wanted space to dance so wow. once the tables are all arranged they get up and they're dancing apparently they were celebrating um an engagement one of one of the the women had just gotten engaged and so they were celebrating they were out for a good time mm. they thought the music was really unusual and before you know it they're up there dancing and that actually got other people in the club to like get up and if they weren't dancing on the dance floor there really is no dance floor but these people up front created it by asking the wait staff to create like a u of the tables surrounding an area of the floor where they could dance which wow. was just really uplifting and so you don't have to, just to go back to the original point, you don't have to um, you don't have to say, this is what we do, and you like it, or tough. <laughs> and you don't have to pander to audiences. You just got to say, well, you know, we're in a venue where loud music would be oppressive, so let's not be as loud tonight. Because right. we do play soft, it's something we authentically do. Like, whatever the thing is, you've got to figure it out. So that's always been the approach we've taken. So this album is accessible. I think because the band has been really focusing on groove more and more, and that's not been to uh, to to be appropriate at an open air festival or to get people dancing at a club. It's just kind of with with a drummer led band. It's kind of been a sensible place for us to go, and and I found that as I brought new people into the group by giving them different grooves. 
uh, it gives them an opportunity to find their space. So I see my job as kind of like giving them the ladder to climb. And uh, I think, you know, for me, one of the, the things I'm, I'm most proud of is a, 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 re a review that talked about my um, tactile groups, that they're minimalistic and tactile. Mm. And because when you're a drummer and you lead a band, it's very easy to overplay. Like you want to play all the time. You want to be like, hey, this is my band. <laughs> um, but if you do that, then, then the individual members aren't going to be able to shine. So I'm always thinking like, Mm, how can I scale back <laughs> so that there is room for an MC and, and, and there is room for soaring saxophone solo from Eric Person or that, you know, if I've got a virtuoso bassist like Tony Berman or Tim Lefebvre, you know, if you, we should get to play live together. Um, you know, how do I give, how do I give them space to do what they do? Right. Yeah. Um, those considerations I think drove the band into this groove focus groove at the four approach and so that's why the album's accessible because people can feel the pulse and they can get locked into the grooves. Um, and I, I actually think that that's going to be a big part of what we do going forward because it just feels right for the group. It feels sensible for the group. Um, but, you know, this album, it's accessible. But if you listen to the track Drowning or Cardinal, right. those are pretty nuts tracks. <laughs> <laughs> They're pretty intense. Um, Away for Breaks is pretty avant-garde. Um, yeah, I love that one. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, but all of the tracks have unusual forms. They're not traditional song forms by any stretch of the imagination. Um, there's certainly with Cody's uh, experimental electronics, there's always mm. that element that makes, uh, you know, adds a kind of avant-garde uh, edge to even our most accessible tracks. Amazing. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's, it's sort of another, like I said, I, I refer to this one as this album as something of like the end of like the five-year plan, so to speak. Uh, it was probably, you know, I, like I said, I think we spoke on like that it was three years ago. So it was sort of, it was always interesting to see the vision that you've had for albums as they've, as they've come out. And, you know, to, for this one, I think we spoke, uh, it must've been uh, when something comes along, I think for that album, I think we probably spoke for the first time and, you know, to see you envisage a, a version of this album from, from even then it's, it's incredible to kind of see these projects get ticked off and the, the, the vision get realized with each time. So I, I, I and you've alluded to a, a sixth uh, album. I, I'm, I'm part of me is wondering if there's actually in your mind, a seventh, eighth and ninth album that, <laughs> that are slowly taking form as well. But there are, anything... <laughs> there are, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, there, there are quite a few projects under the moniker Bright Dog Red uh, in various stages of thought development. Um, but right now my energy is focused on the sixth album, of course, and there's been tracking and there's actually there's some pretty close to complete tracks already, um, but there's some sessions coming up that are going to happen in the studio I have in my home. There'll be some pass around, some you know remote contributions. Um, but there'll also be some whole group live improv. Like we're we're doing, we're we're kind of mixing all the different methods in this production process to see where it leads us. Amazing! It'll be amazing to see how it, obviously how everything kind of unfolds. But um, as you're imagining, uh, or preparing, sorry for album number six, I guess listeners uh, as of today have the the absolute joy of album number five, which is under the porch. And as I said, we're talking on release day, so it's it's even more exciting that you've sort of managed to to make the time for us and uh, to kind of talk about what is another wonderful, wonderful uh, and inspiring project. So again, congratulations to you and the whole team. So 
for another uh, uh, massive success. And it's uh, always, um, yeah, it's always exciting to kind of talk to you about each of these projects and everything that goes into them. So yeah, huge congratulations to you all. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And it's it's been really exciting to work on. And boy, does it feel good to have it out there so that people yeah. can hear it. <laughs> yeah. Is this the, so actually, something else I should have asked? I mean, do you tend to get excited or is there a level of nerves or anxiety just before the album is kind of unveiled? Or are you kind of like, no, like I'm, I'm all in and I'm absolutely confident that this is a great project each time? What does, you know, do nerves kind of kick in around this time? For, for me, the nerves kick in... Uh, kind of at two points. The first is when I turn everything over to the label because then I'm done. I have right. to be. I can't go back and edit. I can't go back and add. I can't go back and cut something and say, you know, this track doesn't belong on the album. That's always a nerve-wracking thing when you finally hand everything in. And um, uh, I think the other nerve-wracking thing is when it very first – the very first mailings to press, which is usually months before the album comes out. That's nerve wracking because you don't Mm -hmm. know how those folks are going to receive it. And, and, and we've been fortunate. We, we generally get really strong reviews. Um, but of course there's no guarantee, you know, when you send something to somebody that that's part of their purview, not, not just their prerogative, but their purview, their charge is to, you know, critically evaluate it and, and, you know, some musicians, um, you know, we even had somebody in the band when we, we got a bad review was really hurt by it. And I, I just said, well, you, you know, we can't really, we can't be hurt by that because if we send it to a person, yeah. we have to accept what their, what their take is on it. That's not a, it's not fair of us to take what they're saying personally, right? That's part of the compact. You send it out, you, but of course it's a nerve wracking, nerve wracking, uh, process. And so sure. the initial press response, you know, can, it can put you at ease. It, you know, it, it, if, if some of the critics that you really respect are saying, oh, this is interesting, or, or, or even just saying, oh, I'm, I'm going to check this out, you start to feel like, okay, n- now whatever happens, happens. But it, the fact that they're, they're paying attention and taking it seriously is like the next step in the process. So when release date comes, you've already had those exchanges with the media and you know, things like what we're doing today have been set up. And so then it's like, okay all right, now we're just going to see it through and, and let the public hear it and respond to it. Amazing. Well, I'm glad, I'm thrilled to hear. And, um, well, I totally expected it to be received as well as it uh, seems to have been. So, again, wonderful, wonderful news and congratulations. So it's, uh, yeah, well-deserved uh, praise and success. So amazing news. Uh, as you know, something of a regular now to these episodes, <laughs> we, uh, which is which is wonderful for me to say. So uh, we close each episode with our guest uh, picking a closing number. So uh, something from under the porch or something that yeah, or is of sort of particular kind of inspiration for you, so something you're enjoying at the time uh, may I ask if you had a moment to, to, to pick a closing number out I have I have indeed and I gave this some thought and it uh, does tie into under the porch and that is uh, it is an EP from the very very talented and interesting musician named Rachel Eckroth oh, wow, and uh, Rachel Eckroth who's a composer and keyboardist and pianist is also the life partner of Tim Lefebvre uh, and uh, she put out an album uh, called The Garden, which was Grammy nominated. If people haven't heard it, they should definitely listen to that album. And and I just, the first time I heard it, I heard it because of Tim. And boy, I, I really was uh, 
I was overwhelmed by the album in, in the best possible sense. I, I just, I, I listened to it and I had to stop what I was doing because I, I, you know, put it on the background. I check out a lot of music that way. And you know, you listen, you say, okay, is that, maybe I'll give that one a second listen. This was an album that just compelled me to listen. Mm. Um, and, and that was an album called the garden. And then from those sessions, there's an EP called common mutations on rainy day records. Right. Um, and the track for me that just really is awesome and just the playing is amazing and the creativity is cool. And I think there's a kindred sort of spirit here in that it's all improvised, uh, is called the sun's coming to get you. It's track three on common mutations by, um, on rainy days record by the, the wonderful musician, Rachel Eckroth with Tim Lefebvre on bass, uh, Christian human on drums. And uh, Rachel's playing, let's see, Moog synthesizers, Prophet synthesizers, Rhodes, uh, Native Instruments, Pianet, playing a lot of electronic instruments. Amazing. I, I, I do have some Rachel Eckroft stuff. I'm uh, Some of the stuff that she did with her producer, uh, Jesse Fisher. Uh, I have to confess, I don't have this one. So I certainly look forward to kind of picking up the EP. Well, check it out and check out The Garden, Knowing Your Taste. Absolutely. Those are two albums. And, and that's an artist I bet you'd even like to talk to because uh, oh, amazing. yeah, her, her work's just really, really great. And, yeah. um, you know, Tim produced the album and of course his bass playing is amazing on it. And uh, mm. like, like all the projects he's involved with, it ha- it's it's not your it's not your standard run of the mill album. <laughs> um, the Garden is really just a stunning album, and uh, the EP Common Mutations is really awesome.